since we're in our group uh, Sangha book study group, we are um, exploring Thich Nhat Hanh's The Heart of the Buddha's Teaching. So we'll probably uh, have a lot, a, a lot more to say from the perspective of Thich Nhat Hanh, um, <clears throat> because I'm sort of re, uh, re-entering uh, the period of my life where Thich Nhat Hanh was my teacher. He was my first teacher. So I'm thinking a lot about him these days and uh, remembering that according to Thich Nhat Hanh, um, in the 21st century, the Buddha is the Sangha. The Buddha is the Sangha. So the, the import of that is, from my perspective, that the the personalized sort of celebrity guru uh, tradition is less significant in in our time than the community of practice so that the sangha is really the 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 teaching the teaching place it's not so much located in a single person as it is in the community of practice, in, so that we're all sharing the practice and all <coughs> teaching one another. Um, and so here we are um, gathering to sit together and to share together uh, this practice and the insights and the pathway that it opens for us. So the fact that you've come here that you've made the effort um, is the an act of Buddha. Uh, so being part of Sangha and showing up is uh, a very important um, part of your practice. Um, so thank you for, for coming today. Um, we have been, we've started reading together uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's The Heart of the Buddha's Teaching. And the first uh, chapter has to do with the first noble truth, which is the truth of suffering. And so I thought today uh, I would address a little bit further uh, the issue that we, we started to look at on Thursday and that is the, uh, the truth of suffering. And uh, at the table in Webster's, uh, the question was raised, um, who, is there anyone here who doesn't suffer? And nobody raised their hand. Nobody said, I'm free from suffering. So the, the truth of this is that really one, it's not possible to find any human being who doesn't suffer. So the truth of that is obvious. Um, and I think if you, if you look at your own life, there may be times when you feel uh, content or happy or joyful, but suffering is never far away because of the nature of impermanence and 
that joyfulness, that happiness, that contentment is not going to last. So suffering, the, 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 the struggle that we have in trying to hold on to anything <coughs> is one of the causes, one of the, one of the hows of our suffering. And I, I also suggested that in our practice, it isn't particularly helpful to ask why we suffer. We do. And we can go round and round and round in trying to figure out why. What, what are the causes for our suffering? It is probably more helpful to ask how we suffer. Because in asking how, we can actually address the transformation of suffering. We can actually look at the ways in which suffering happens. So I want to give uh, an example, one of, uh, I keep going back to in my own life, which may suggest at least one of the dimensions of suffering. And I'm particularly reminded of this because this is harvest season and there are lots of tomatoes being, uh, being picked and spread, spread around. And I had an, a very interesting experience with a tomato. And I had belonged to a community-supported agriculture uh, farm. And every Saturday at the Home Depot, they had my box of produce for the week. And I would go and pick it up and take it home and enjoy it. And one week, I arrived at um, the farm stand. And the woman there was uh, taking out the various items that were to go into my, uh, my basket for the week. And she was picking out some cucumbers and kale and squash. And then she picked up a tomato and was about to put it in my basket. And I noticed that the tomato had a scar on it. It had actually a crescent-shaped scar. And I, I looked at the woman and I said, you know something? Uh, you can keep that tomato. <laughs> Um, it doesn't, it doesn't really look like it's something that should be put in my basket this week. And she looked at me and she held up the tomato with the crescent shaped scar and she said, this tomato is smiling at you. <laughs> and I didn't know really what to make of that. And I just said, well, I don't care, put it back. <laughs> <laughs> and I went home without that tomato, but that tomato was haunting me mm -hmm. and what she said about it. And I couldn't stop considering why I had put that tomato back. <laughs> 
and said, you can have this. I don't want it. Because, why? Because it didn't seem perfect to me. It wasn't, it didn't fulfill my idea of what a tomato given by something I had paid a lot of money for. It didn't seem appropriate. It didn't seem the right kind of tomato for me to have. And so I spent a lot of time uh, being, uh, being preoccupied with why I had given it back and why this woman thought that this was amusing that I had rejected this tomato when she saw it as a <coughs> smiling thing. Uh, you know, why would I ever reject a smiling tomato? And I realized that I had been carrying around not just ideas as to what a perfect tomato was, but I had been carrying ideas around about what lots of things ought to be, and rejecting and criticizing because things didn't meet my notion of what a tomato should be, what a friend should be, <clears throat> what my house should be looking like, uh, what I should be achieving in my life, uh, and of course it came back to me too. Am I the perfect tomato? <laughs> Am I the perfect Zen priest? Am I the perfect person, friend, teacher, uh, mother? And I always fell short. It was always this, there's something, there's something not right with me. And this is, I suspect, something that we all, to some degree or other, share. Um, when I gave birth to my daughter, I had a really beautiful image of what she was going to be and how many grandchildren I would have and um, where she would live and who she would marry and what her career would be and it was just, just this beautiful fantasy of who my daughter was going to be. And when she was in high school, she was a cheerleader, and she was just like the perfect, the perfect, beautiful, all-American girl who happened when she turned 21 to tell me that she was gay and that she was the way she just called me up on the phone and said, I'm sleeping with a woman, Mom. Wow, that was suddenly all of my fantasies were shot to hell.
And it has taken me quite a while to come to terms with the fact that this tomato is smiling at me and that this wonderful daughter who I brought up was perfect, just as she was. So what Buddha saw, which we don't see usually, is that this tomato, this tomato, is perfect just as it is. He saw that. He saw that all beings were perfect, not ideal. There's, there's a difference because an ideal is something we construct, right? We, we construct the ideal person, the ideal tomato. There just doesn't exist anything like that. It's like women for many, many centuries, and men too, have to live up to some kind of ideal image that is projected in magazines, in Hollywood, in all kinds of uh, media and social, social interactions, that this is the ideal woman, this is the ideal man, this is the ideal career, this is the ideal uh, child. And these are all constructions. But what Buddha, he saw through those constructions, including about himself, that this is what it is. <laughs> and it is perfect, just exactly the way it is. Now, when we see, for example, if you go into a, a store and you see a tag on a, on a piece of clothing or on a tomato and it says, as is, what does that mean? It means there's something wrong with it, right? So you're just buying it as it is. Right. That's totally antithetical to our practice. So when that tag says, as is, it doesn't mean that it's imperfect. It just means it is as it is. But it may not measure up to some ideal that the customer is coming in to look for. We're looking for the ideal, per maybe it has, a, maybe a button is missing. Maybe the tomato has a crescent-shaped scar on it. And then we think, oh, as is, that's, that's, that there's something wrong, something wrong with it. And we too, as we are, there's something, something wrong with the way we are. And so many of us carry around this feeling that there's something wrong with us. There's something we have to be. There's something we have to change. There, we have to change because we don't, we somehow don't meet up with some ideal that we have, that we have either constructed for ourselves 
or we have internalized from some other construct that, we're, that we see in the world. It is very, very hard to let go of that because we're constantly bombarded with the way we should be. Whether it be the way we dress, the way we look, the way we move, the, you know, what we say, um, there's something, there's something wrong and we need to change it. And many of us actually come to meditation practice because we think that this is going to improve us. It's not going to improve you. You're, you actually are not coming here, whether you think so or not, to be improved. Because there's nothing to improve upon. You're coming here to discover that you're just fine the way you are. And there aren't many places you can come to discover that. Because most of the places that you go to you ought to do this. You ought to perform better. You ought to change in this way. You don't fit the, you don't fit the, uh, the uh, template that we've established here. So we're always trying to be something more perfect, more ideal, better. You know, all the self-improvement books that are out there. From Buddhist, by the perspective of Buddhist practice, there's nothing to improve. You're the tomato in whatever shape, size, I'm not even going to call it blemishes. It's not a blemish. It's a mark on the tomato. It's part of the tomato's existence. And you can't, you, you don't argue with that. You just, that's what Buddha saw. He saw the perfection of all things as is. As is. Can we accept ourselves as is? And can we notice when we're trying to be what somebody or some other institution or some other social construct wants us to be? And can we return to our as-isness? So many of us are not practiced at this that we lose a sense of how we are as is. And we come here to renew, to get back in touch with our as isness and to totally, totally accept that. Now that doesn't mean that we don't change. Because that's another mark of existence, which is impermanence. 
So one of the things that we discover is that who we are as is, is constantly changing. So we don't have to try to change. We are going to change. And the question is, how do we change? How do we move with the chain, our changing nature? And that's, that's part of the Buddhist path. If we stay in touch with how things are from moment to moment, we will naturally become more and more fully realized as human beings. We, that's all we have to do. We just have to be in touch with how things are as they are and they will inevitably change. And you will change, because you cannot hold on to anything. So who you are is not permanent. Sometimes this is called discontinuous identity. That when I say who you really are, I'm not pointing to any fixed self. And this is the beauty of who you are. That is that you're not fixed. That you're continually as is, moment after moment after moment. And this is what enables growth and development and, and fuller and fuller realization that you're not fixed, that you do not have a fixed identity. And so there's another wonderful um, passage in Alan Watts, who I'm very mm-hmm. fond of. Um, and he says that life is this, uh, this, this constantly flowing river And some of us want to think we can flow against the current, that we we have to work hard at changing things, at, at making ourselves better, at changing the world. And that's a, a kind of going against the flow of life. But if we are flowing moment after moment, and being present to what is actually happening. We, it's like the difference between um, uh, uh, operating a sailboat, which goes with the wind, and then can kind of, when it's going with the wind, kind of, kind of steer, uh, but not rowing against, not being in a rowboat, and rowing against the flow. So if we are basically moving through our lives with no fixed sense of self, 
That is, we are open and spacious, and as it says in the Loving Kindness Sutra, no fixed ideas. We will suffer if we hold to fixed ideas. About tomatoes, <laughs> we will suffer. About our friends, our about colleagues, and about ourselves. If we hold to fixed ideas, we're going to suffer. And I can't tell you how many times I have heard, not only from others, but from myself, well, that's just the way I am. You know, I'm just a critical person. Or, I, I just don't show emotions. That's just the way I am. I don't, I'm just not an emotional person. Or, you know, I'm basically, I'm basically depressed. I've, I've been like that all my life. That's who I am. That is a fixed idea. And because that it, that's like rowing against the tide, against the flow. Because, my goodness, there might come a moment when you could actually be joyful. And because you have that fixed idea, that's, that's not possible. Nope. Or there might come a moment when you have someone with you who brings up all kinds of emotions. No, nope, I'm not an emotional person. It's not allowed. Just like, no, nope, that tomato is unacceptable because I have this idea. It's just an idea. Just an idea. It's a mental construct of who you should be, of what this should be, of what your life should be like. It's totally mental construct. And we have to see it for what it is. And once we see it for what it is, space opens, possibility opens, creativity opens. And that's what we practice, seeing things for what they are. This ideal that I have exists, but it isn't permanent. It isn't fixed unless I don't let go of it, unless I just hold on to it and walk around in my life with all of these ideas. And then, as I wrote down on the eraser board. Then comes the if only. If only that tomato didn't have a scar on it, I'd be happy. I would take it. If only I didn't have curly hair, <laughs> I would feel a lot better about myself. If only I weren't 75 years old and could be back to the time I was 20, oh gosh, that would be, that, that would make me 
so 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 happier because so much happier because there are things that I could do as twenty that I can't do now. If only, if only, if only, if only my partner were this, if only my my job was this, if only we're not seeing things as is. And if we do that, things will change. <laughs> Instead of having to go to war, if only, and try to change, try to change things. They're going to be changing right in front of our eyes. And we need to be able to go with clarity with the things as they're changing, as they are, moment after moment. Well, so this wasn't, a, a, this wasn't an ideal Dharma talk, <laughs> but it was perfect, just, just, as it, just as it is, I hope. <laughs> okay. Please return your cushions.